how many of you have ever thought about what would be written on your tombstone? I know that's a really cheery thing to start the summer off with. And I also know that you all are very young, so that's probably the last thing that you've thought about. But I'm told that as you get older, uh, this begins to weigh more and more heavily on you. How will I be remembered? How will my life be summarized? Well, this summer, we're going to be looking at the life of David. And, And here's how the Apostle Paul in Acts 13 summed up his life. David was a man after God's heart. That was his legacy. And what I want to propose to you is that is a legacy worth trying to claim for ourselves, to be men and women after God's heart. And so this summer, we're going to be moving around in First and Second Samuel, as well as some Psalms, to get a, a rounded view of David's life, to see this man who was after God's own heart. And, and we're doing that to try and glean and understand how we too might emulate that, how, how you and I can be people after God's heart. And we really have to start with answering the question, what does that even mean? What does it mean to be someone after God's heart? Because if you look at David's life, you quickly realize it can't mean perfection. Um, Because as we'll see in this series, David messes up several times quite spectacularly. And so tonight, what I want us to do is to figure out what it means to be someone after God's heart. And and in so doing, we'll be able to figure out why David is such a great example of this. And to to get at this idea, I think it's helpful to look at David's predecessor, at King Saul. Because King Saul had a lot of things going for him. He was tall, he was handsome, but he was the exact opposite of someone whose heart was after the Lord, according to 1 Samuel 13, 14. And so tonight, what I want us to do is look at why Saul was not a man after God's heart so we can see more clearly why David was. And so we're going to be in 1 Samuel 15, and from our text, we're going to make three movements. I want us to look at a particular incident that highlights this in Saul's life, the condition that causes this incident, and what the cure is. Okay. Now, the, the incident that we're, we're referring to is when God comes to King Saul and says, hey, I want you to go and completely destroy the Amalekites. I want you to wipe out and destroy the men, the women, the children, all their livestock, everything. And there's a part of us that like, is offended by that, that it seems unjust. And if you would like to have that conversation later, I would love to have it with you. Let me just give you the summary for now. God's instruction to King Saul is both justified and it's all about justice. Uh, That's actually why he orders him to completely destroy everything. This is not about gaining wealth and, and possession and land. This is just about executing justice on a very unjust group of people. And unsurprisingly, Saul was victorious. And here were the post-battle highlights. I'm reading from verses 7 through 9 in 1 Samuel 15. And Saul, he defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But... 
Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, that they devoted to destruction. Now, if you're paying attention, you'll notice that Saul does not actually follow the Lord's instructions. Oh, sure, he destroys most of it. Maybe he does 80% of what God tells him to do. But he modifies the commands a little bit. And this really bothers God. Uh, So much so that he comes to the prophet Samuel and says, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel, the prophet, was quite upset too, uh, so much so that he tracks Saul down and he gives him an earful in verses 17 through 19. He says, Saul, though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And you might read that and think, okay, so, so being someone after God's heart is all about obedience then. That, that to be after God's heart, it just means that, that you owe him and you need to be a mindless yes man. That if God tells you to do something, then you do it regardless of how you feel. That being after God's heart just means you obey him. And while there, there is an obedience component here, both being someone after God's heart and Saul's disobedience, they both go much deeper than behavior alone. See, Saul has this pre-existing condition that, that prompts his disobedience, and it's really what, what prevents him from being the king that God calls him to be. And it takes Samuel a little while to unearth this condition. Um, Samuel has to convince Saul that partial obedience is actually disobedience, and that it's just as serious as the capital offenses of divination and idolatry. And, and once, once Samuel backs Saul into a corner, once Saul can no longer explain away his behavior, he confesses his wrongdoing. And as he does that, if you listen closely, he reveals what his condition is. Listen very closely to his confession to Samuel in verses 24 and 25. Saul says to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord in your words, because I feared the people, and I obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me, that I may bow before the Lord. See, Saul's condition is that he feared the people. Now, now let, let's talk about what he means by this word, fear, because typically when we think about fear, we think about it in ter- in, in, like negatively. Like you're afraid that you're going to be hurt by something. That's why we're afraid of snakes and spiders and what have you. Um, Saul is not afraid of the people in that sense. Saul just won a decisive victory over a group of people that have bothered the Israelites for hundreds of years. They love him. And Saul loves that the people love him. And that's, that's what he's afraid of. See, there's, there's a negative side of fear and there is a, um, a, 
positive side of fear. Have you ever met someone famous? Like, like someone that you really look up to? If you try to have a conversation with them, typically it comes out as like gibberish and like you're shaking. It's because you're afraid of that person. Not, not because you're worried they're going to hurt you, but you are in such awe and respect of that person that it affects your behavior. That's what Saul is talking about here. He, he's so enamored with the people and their opinion of him that he doesn't want to let them down. And that's why he disobeys God. See, Saul's condition is that he loves and values the people's approval more than God's. Uh, in fact, everything Saul does in this story is to gain the approval of the people. Saul spares King Agag. Why? So that the people will see him as a king, among, or king of kings, a king above all kings. Uh, he spares the finest things so that he can give it to the people and make them happy. He makes a pit stop on his way to Gilgal at Carmel to set up a statue in his honor so that people can be constantly reminded of how great he is and how much they ought to like him. And even after Samuel issues his judgment that the Lord will, will tear away the kingdom from Saul, in verse 30, listen to what he says. He again admits that he has sinned, yet... Would you honor me before the elders of my people, before Israel, and return with me? Even as he is losing the kingdom, all he's worried about is, will the people like me? That is Saul's pre-existing condition. That Saul wasn't someone after God's heart because his heart was too busy chasing after something else. And what's happening in this account is that his obedience is being shaped by his affections. And that really is true of all of us. Our hearts are prone to fear, to delight in, to love, to value something other than God. And that, that love, that valuing will shape your actions. And here's an easy way to figure out what it is that you fear. What is it that you most love and care about? Look at those times that you are disobedient to what the Lord has called you to do. Because I guarantee you, in those times you are being disobedient to the Lord, you are being obedient to something else. You are being obedient to the thing that your heart loves more than God. And that is the thing that prevents us from being men and women after God's heart. Um, which means that we all are in need of a cure. And so, so just so we're on the same page. To be after God's heart means that he is our greatest delight, that we love him above all else. And that's a problem because we, we really, because our sin hardwired to love and delight in other things. It's like, um, it's like our hearts are in a constant game of tug of war, that, that, that we're God is pulling on one side, the God substitutes are pulling on the other, and, and our hearts keep pulling along with the God substitutes. We keep convincing ourselves that they are stronger, they are better, they, they, will, they will satisfy us more completely than God ever could. And, and, and this tug of war is really what sets David apart from Saul. See, see David's greatest affections are always for the Lord. 
All you have to do is read the Psalms that he wrote. Uh, often you'll find that it follows a similar pattern, regardless of the circumstance. Good, bad, whether people are for him or against him, he always comes back to, I delight in the Lord. He is enough. I delight in the Lord. He's all I need. And that's why David is a man after God's own heart, because he grasped the greatness of God's love toward him. And he let that delight redirect his affections and therefore shape his actions. And, and that makes a lot of sense for David, right? God, God did a lot of great things in David's life, made him king, uh, gave, made an eternal covenant with him in 2 Samuel 7. He did all of these things. So sure, David would, would grasp the greatness and goodness of God toward him. But what we need to realize is that even though none of us will be called to be king of a country, we have experienced an even greater demonstration of God's love and favor. See, in Romans chapter 8, Paul, Paul um, has this to say about God's love and favor towards us. In Romans 8, uh, 31 32, he says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Paul's saying, look at what God has done for you. He's given his son for you. And I can guarantee you that no other competitor for your heart's affections, no other God substitute will sacrifice you, sacrifice for you the same way that God has. And it's when we grasp that, when we get that, that's what changes our heart's affections. Uh, that, that's what moves us toward being men and women after God's heart. Um, and so this summer, we're going to look at how David's delight in the Lord played out in his life, how it played out when times were tough for him, how it played out when he could have taken matters into his own hands and times when he did take it into his own hands and it was a disaster. Uh, but, but for tonight, what I really want us to see and get is that the thing that made David a man after God's heart wasn't his perfection. It was his passion for, his, for the Lord, his great love and delight him. And what I want to call us to and challenge us to this summer is to grow in that same affection. 